Hello, and welcome to Gritting in Color, sharing the creative endeavors of people of color. I'm your host, KB, and today I'm joined with Austin Faber, a storyboard artist whose past projects include Owl House and the recently announced show on Netflix, Cuphead. How are you today, Austin? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for being on the show. So what's it like being a storyboard artist? Uh, so I actually was recently promoted from storyboard revisionist to storyboard artist only about two or three months ago. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And honestly, it's been great. You have a lot of control, like you have a lot of creative freedom. When you do storyboards, very demanding job. Like you really have to be on top of your time management. You have to draw very fast. You have to be very like creative, like on the fly, coming up with gags and dialogue and all of that. So it can get chaotic. But so far, it's really fun. That's so cool. How did you get started in the industry? Oh, boy. Okay, so this is a really funny question. So the short answer is um, I started as an intern in the Owl House over at Disney TV. But getting there was actually even a big challenge. So it all started actually during my summer between my third and my fourth year when I was attending Sheridan College over in Toronto. At Sheridan, you had to get an internship or some sort of co-op in order to get graduation credit but Sheridan and the Canadian industry like it's a lot less competitive up there so everyone got placed except for me who's the who's the only LA native in my entire class I was you know gunning for internships at Nickelodeon Cartoon Network you know Disney and I didn't get any callbacks Mm -hmm. so I kind of came back home with my tail between my legs feeling like like a failure but I, I was actually contacted by this guy named Richard Chavez. Now, Richard, I've known technically since I was 14. He's done Kung Fu with my mom ever since, you know, I was, you know, a wee lad. So I've known of him. We didn't really talk much, but I knew he existed. And long story short, he and my mom were talking, I guess, one day because they're pretty close. Richard's like, oh, where's Austin been all these all this time? And she's like, oh, he's studying animation up in Canada. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm an animator, right? And she's like, what? And so like, he calls me and he's like, I'm an animator. And I'm like, you're, you're what? And he's like, I did lead production design on Prince of Egypt. And I'm just like, what? And he's like, where are you? And I'm like, I am, hold on. And so when I came back home for the summer, I met up with him at the dojo. We talked a little bit and he had just got laid off on a project. And so he had some free time. So he was like, hey, do you want to like come by my house a few times a week? I can like, teach you or whatever. And I'm like, yes. So that was, that became my co-op slash internship just working with Richard Chavez and that whole summer he maybe unlearned things like the bad habits from school he was like don't worry about making things perfect don't worry about this actually we're gonna throw all this out and I was just like he, he had me kind of start from the ground up in terms wow. of like my artistic vision he was like take this sketch he handed me like a thick sketchbook he's like I want you to fill this up and I'm like well what about like painting and all this and he's like don't worry about that I want you to fill this up with just things that you love and that's it. And I was like, okay, but, and he's like, don't, no, 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 no buts. And so like that, that was my whole summer, just him giving me assignments and me just sort of like learning to do things that I love. And that actually directly ties to ZTV because by the time I started fourth year, I had built up that those habits so much from the summer working with him. Disney actually wound up kind of laying their eyes on me when I ran into them at the Ottawa Film Festival because to them, I was an immediate standout because my art was so, it, it was so personal that was their words and then that kind of carried me into the them kind of suggesting i apply for the internship and then i apply for the internship and they call me back and then i got the internship and then i went over to disney and that's how i really got my foot in the door was honestly just being myself thank you richard if you're listening to this (laughs) 
Wow, that is a pretty unique journey. I haven't heard that one before. Yeah, it, it, it was definitely not a straight path. <laughs> this was fun when it had it any other way. Did you always know that you wanted to go into animation or even going into storyboarding? Uh, no, actually. I was avoiding animation like the plague <laughs> when I was younger. I was. No, it was because like, what was it? I had gotten this like animation magazine when I was maybe like, 12 or 13 just in the mail like by chance and i had i think i had bolt on the front of it and i was like wow that looks really cool and then i read read the entire magazine and all in the insides were just like these students from like schools because you know they had advertisements for schools inside there yeah it was at their animation desk is drawing and then the captions were like animation students drawing all day and i'm just like hmm i don't know about that and at the end of the magazine it was just like it didn't really have anything. It was just literally like a day in the life of Craig McCracken. And he was a joke, but he was kind of writing about like how, you know, interns from like Cal Arts and stuff like that would like try to show him stuff. But he was just really just interested because they're like students. And I'm like, well, then what's the point of going into animation if no one's going to care <laughs> what I have to say? Mm-hmm. If I'm just going to be drawing the same thing over and over again. So I kind of just gave up on that. And I was like, I'm going to go into comics and hopefully my comic will be adapted into a TV show like in Japan. So that was my goal. And I almost got published in high school. Oh, I say almost, but like I found a self-publishing company in high school and I was going to go through them. Ooh, almost though. Yeah, that didn't work out either. But I was, I always wanted to be a creator. Uh, That has just always been in my blood. I always loved creating things. I would make these elaborate stories with my like stuffed animals and like things like that growing up. But I never really wanted to go into animation specifically until like I did an internship not art related at Disneyland I did the Disney college program and when I did that we took a few classes with Disney executives and they were the ones that were kind of like your final project is to make a career day presentation of what you want to do after the program I did comic artist wasn't an option so I just picked animator and during my presentation my teacher was like oh this is actually really good presentation um i didn't know you want to be an animator and i'm like oh i actually want to be a comic artist and he's like oh comic art is you can't do that right now unless you're going to web comics paper comics is dead unless you're going to dc or marvel or dark horse so unless you want to do web comics i'd, I'd recommend maybe going to animation school and then almost not even like i think it was literally that night i went back to my disney apartment with my roommates and like steven universe came on that's when i think it debuted and i was just like completely blown away by the aesthetics and just like the story and everything and i'm just like who 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 made this and i looked it up and obviously it was rebecca sugar age 25 and i was just like what the what the hell like i was i was like she's so young and she has a show already i was maybe 19 at the time 1920 so i was kind of like oh so in, you think in five years i can have a show what and so i got really excited and that that reignited my excitement for animation and the fire has never gone out ever since so i have to ask also sure with you almost becoming a self-published comic book artist slash writer slash creator but that not working out, does that have to do with your final presentation with your superior saying no? Yeah, a little bit. Because I remember he knew that I had like some ideas on the side. But even he kind of figured they'd be better for shows and animation than comics. I'm not saying that they can't be comics, but he was kind of like, I guess in his mind, a lot of the ideas I had seemed like they'd play better out on screen. I'm very dramatic and I like cinematography and I like acting and 
moving things and so he's like yeah that's naturally it seems like you want to work in animation and i was like okay and i think he was right i think i fit better maybe in animation than comics although i do love comics yeah. as well oh i see yeah do you feel like there's a way you could do both oh no absolutely i know people for sure that do both i think for me comics are like they take up a different side of my brain i feel like comics is kind of more of like it can be more illustrative depending on what kind of comic you're making I'm more interested in being sort of a director, kind of overseeing something rather than sitting down and drawing a whole thing. Although I've made tons of comics in the past, like during my childhood, all I make is comics. That's all I could do. But now that I'm evolved and my artistic vision is a little more, <laughs> it's stranger. I fall in love with more of the uh, directorial side of sort of making stories rather than the sitting down and drawing everything out. I love drawing, but I, I don't think I've made to a, uh, do comics that takes that takes a lot of strength that i don't think i have anymore a lot of mental strength when you say your art is strange what do you mean by strange well i guess my artistic vision is a little strange in the sense that um i have a lot of ideas that are really like i would call them maybe subversive a little maybe um not even divisive either it's just that as i've grown up i've had a lot of experiences that sort of evolve my vision best way i can explain it it's kind of like with roald dahl or the writers behind the twilight zone the stories they would tell are sort of they're really fun but they're dark you know and they have hidden messages kind of like slipped into them and because of that that's why i kind of say my, since my vision's a little stranger now like that it's my intent is no longer to make like okay i don't want to i'm not as interested in the drawing aspect as much I, I always love drawing i'm not interested in like oh i want to draw this out and make it look super cool or whatever i'm more interested in the impression the voice behind everything and that's like a directorial thing like i want to really be in charge of like what is being said and how it's being said and sort of overlook that sort of side of the process do you feel in order to be successful in the animation industry you have to be an artist that's a good question my knee-jerk response is no it's a bit of a layered answer because i think that in order to get into the industry it helps to be an artist because a lot of studios especially a lot of big studios they're interested in that person's artistic vision and how that can help the project so i think for the most part yeah like you have to be an artist and there's different types of artists in the industry like there's writers and there's designers there's board artists even like production you know i think there's an art to that production and editing you have to have a, I think there's a love for the arts that shines through with the people that work in those departments. However, I've noticed mostly in art school that there are lots of people that can draw, you know, but most of them could draw better than me, but they didn't really identify as artists. They kind of told me they want to just work. They want to be workers and they didn't really have artistic visions. And that was interesting to me. And I was kind of like, oh, I, I'm like, I guess there really is a place for that because we need that too. You know, we need people that can just do the work. We need people that are artists that can do the work. We need people that are just purely like just pure visionaries, you know, so there's a spectrum. So I'd say no, but that's not, that's not, that's not a bad thing either. So as a storyboard artist, what does your daily routine look like? Well, <laughs> my routine now is a little muddy because I started boarding uh, during quarantine. But right now, I do a little bit of work in the morning, maybe from like 10 to noon, I do a little bit of work. But then I honestly will take a longer break in the middle of the day, and I'll do most of my work from like 
4 p.m. to 9 p.m. Because I work better at night, and I always have. Back when we were in the office, as a revisionist, I would get to work maybe at 10 o'clock, because I realized no work got done before 10 o'clock. At least not the story department. At least not in my story department. (laughs) And I noticed that, like, I kind of worked slower in the office because sometimes there's, like, meetings or sometimes there's distractions or whatever. So there was a routine there, too, but it was less productive. And now that I'm home, I have full control over when I work, how much I work, if I even want to work, you know? And so it's like one morning I can wake up and I can feel like garbage. And so I just decided not to work until maybe 3 p.m. And then I work until like 11. And it's not like an overworking thing. It's just sort of like a, that's how my brain is. And that's the best way for me to work, at least being at home. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's your question. I don't really have much of a routine in the the traditional sense, but I do have a, I do work mostly evening. If I could just say that. So you were just promoted to a storyboard artist from a revisionist. Do you feel like there's a huge difference between the two positions? Or do you feel like it's same coin but different side? Oh, that's a good question. I think um I think they're pretty different, actually. Because I think revisionist, you're kind of like fifty percent editor, thirty percent uh I'd say maybe machine, and then twenty percent artist, because like Really, you're just addressing notes that somebody else wants. So you don't really have a lot of creative freedom or control. Revisioning is great because you can use certain opportunities to plus something or shine through or kind of give it a little extra flair. So that part is, that part's good. But storyboarding, just being a storyboard artist, it's like a whole different, it feels like a completely different animal because you're making everything from scratch for the most part. And I didn't realize it'd be this fun <laughs> for me because I know people have kind of told me like, oh, board art, you know, being a board artist is so like hard, like it's the worst thing, oh my God. And I'm just kind of like, oh, I, I can see it because it is difficult. And I again, I haven't been a board artist for very long. I also think it helps that I'm working from home. So I kind of, kind of I have more jurisdiction over how much work I put in. But uh, yeah, I think they're very different. I think storyboard revisioning is closer to editing, like being an editor rather than, being like a traditional like artist because you're not really putting forward any vision or any opinion you're kind of just addressing what somebody wants that's just my take on it so far it's been pretty different what is the difference between a storyboard artist and an animator so a storyboard artist they, they tend to key out major actions and depending on the show it can be very rough whereas an animator brings that performance to life by like doing the in-betweens they will oftentimes sort of elaborate on the action because some actions on storyboards are really like plain it's like the character picks up a cup walks off screen and scene an animator will maybe give that more personality they might like have the character pick up the cup do a little twirl you know do and then skip off screen so that the animator will sometimes be able to put their own little vision into the scene depending on the show what the budget looks like okay then what is the difference between a storyboard artist and an illustrator Oh, I, I like this question. Best way I can explain it is I would say illustration is to photography as maybe storyboarding and animation is to film. So illustration is all about the single image, uh, giving you all the narrative information that you need. So, you know, you can look at a Gustav Klimt painting and that tells you everything you need to know. You know, you get the, you get the impression, you get the emotion, it's all there. Whereas if you watched a Mary, a Mary Melody's cartoon, 
you, if, if those are shorts, but those give you an, an impression over a course of like two to three minutes. So that's what I would say is the major difference. The photography to film example is the best way I can explain it. Because obviously photography is one image. Film is multiple. But each have the intent of telling a story or communicating something. Two different approaches. And what are some specific roadblocks that you look out for? Oh, man. One of the first ones... I was, I experienced was people trying to label, like label you. Like if you're going into storyboarding, because storyboarding is extremely competitive, especially now, people will like try to label you up and down. It is insane. It'll happen in school. It'll happen at cons. It'll happen on the internet. They'll be like, you're either feature or you're TV, period. It's very polarizing. Mm. And it wasn't until I mentored with Richard that he told me that that's that's a, that made like no sense to him. He was like, who's telling you this? Like, that doesn't even make sense. And I was like, but the people say that you can only do one or the other. And he was like, no, good boarding is good boarding. It's all about staging and acting and how you control the camera. And that transcends a silly label like TV or feature. So I would say in terms of roadblocks, be very careful if people are trying to label you because you can sometimes brand yourself into a corner. Meaning, obviously, if you try too hard to be one or the other, you may wind up hurting your chances <laughs> overall. Yes, my boards, my boarding portfolio were actually, technically speaking, they were more like feature boards, quote unquote. They weren't super clean. They weren't like keyed out like most television boards are. But like people that worked in TV seemed to like them because they, they just saw solid acting and solid staging. And that's all, you know, people really care about when they're hiring. So that's one, I think that's a, the biggest roadblock I would point out is trying not to label yourself too early or at all, <laughs> not letting people do it for you either. What support or resources do you recommend for someone trying to break in? Ooh, the internet is an infinite source. I know I, I hate that answer because it's so vague, but I can definitely be a little more specific with it. So for me, I love going down rabbit holes and you'd be surprised how deep these rabbit holes can go so if you're interested in a specific subject like let's say you want to go into storyboard what i would do is that i would pick a movie that i'd like and i would first of all i'd watch it and i'd, I'd go to the credits and i'd like i would literally like write down the names of people who boarded it type them into google and then i find out things that they worked on their history sometimes you strike gold somebody one of them has maybe like a blog or something and they go in on like how they got to where they did and then they point somebody else that did the same thing and it's a crazy so be curious the internet is really like the best resource out there right now because before you just go to the library you have to like talk to people in person like all that you can still you can still do that now i 100 percent think that uh going down these rabbit holes is what taught me most of what i know and it that kind of ambition and that kind of skill transfers over when you do get a job knowing how to get information is a huge thing especially if you want to work in um like a creative field like you know design or storyboarding or even production even like production management being a line producer all of that you need that skill set that's what helped me at least sort of get my start i found a lot of cool websites and blogs that helped me out um one for one i can list is fluby newbie you can literally just type that in on google and it's like this massive storyboarding resource that I, I found like maybe six years ago by accident. Because again, I, went, I was down a rabbit hole. But 
it's cool. Now everyone seems to know about it because everyone keeps like sharing it. That's that's a big that's a big one. That's a big big one. If you want to go into storyboarding, that I can expose for the public, so you guys you you guys can all check it out. It's awesome. And speaking of portfolios, what would you recommend would be something good to include in one or something not to include? Hmm. Like, what would help someone's portfolio stand out the best you can describe in an audio medium? Well, the first thing I'll say is to have a focus, which is huge. That's a huge, huge thing. Because um, even if your work is good, if someone's looking at your art and doesn't know what you want to do, they're going to immediately sort of become disinterested. And I've seen this happen before my eyes multiple times during my fourth year in school. We had tons of people come in for portfolio reviews unannounced from like big studios like DreamWorks and uh, Disney Feature came to visit. And uh, I think some people from like Sony, it was crazy. And every single time, they always gravitated towards the students that had a focus and knew the kind of more or less what they wanted to do. And the second thing that these students had in their portfolios were, were clear, clear artistic vision. You know, they weren't really tailored to anything in specific. They weren't like, oh, here's my Disney portfolio. Or here's my Pixar or Sony portfolio. It was just like, here's my art. Here's what I do. And it was very, it was very clear that these students knew kind of who they were but it's because it was only after hours and hours of like you know self-searching and research and exploration that you know they get to that level yeah i would say if we want specifics in the portfolio if you're doing storyboards maybe only three three stories i would include character interaction that's a big one i don't see a lot especially in student portfolios character interaction is huge character interaction is huge Make the story something you care about. I wouldn't use assignments that are kind of boring. Like, make something you care about. And for design, this is the only other portfolio I can kind of comment on because I've done a design and story portfolio. Design, you want to showcase your technical skill as well as your, I guess, your creative chops. Like, you want to make sure you have rotations, you know, character rotations. You want to make sure you have good, like, strong posing. But when I got to Disney... I asked somebody what made like my art and the couple of interns I was with, like what made our art stand out. Cause I, I genuinely did not, I genuinely did not know. Cause I was like, what are you guys looking for in interns? And they were saying that for us, it was that our art showcased strong drawing first. That was the first thing they look for because a lot of people can design and they can make pretty colors, but they're like, we, we want strong draftsmanship strong drawing and then we are looking for people with an opinion you know after that people that can like make something funny or cool or whatever so for design definitely solid drawing comes first so showcasing as much of that as you can through posing or rotations or mouth charts just showing in any form you can that you can draw and that's pretty much what i would say um just have just have those and the rest is up to you nice thank you yeah Oh, one more question. Is there any software you would recommend? Well, that's actually really funny. So I'm, I was actually awful <laughs> at software. I, I'm still not super great at it. Like, I didn't learn Photoshop until I got to animation school. So that was cool. I didn't really have, like, a computer or a laptop to draw on for my entire life. So I, o- I only drew things on paper. But now 
I, I would definitely recommend Photoshop or Paint Tool Sci or just doing anything, learning how to draw digitally. It doesn't really matter what you use. I say Photoshop because it is the industry standard. I know people don't like to use it, but it's, it'd be good to learn. There's some contention between like people who want to use Toon Room Harmony to animate or TV Paint. I'd say TV, TV Paint's beautiful because it, 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 the output, the output of the, in the production value is just incomparable. But once again, it's not the industry standard. <laughs> Some kind of like, I would say learn Toon Room Harmony, learn Toon Room Starboard Pro and Harmony to get a job, you know, and then do TV Paint on the side. Yeah, I think that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. I don't really use a lot of software. I, I still use sketchbooks, like a caveman. Do you design your own storyboard panels or do you use templates? So in Storyboard Pro, I it's all pretty much there for you. But when I make my own templates for storyboards, I use uh, I use artboards on Photoshop. That's a function you can do that just kind of creates a storyboard sort of sequence on your file. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much it. That's all I just do them on paper. Austin, mm-hmm. what was your upbringing like? Oh, this is a fun question. <laughs> so my upbringing, it was ultimately was really, it was mixed. So I, I had a pretty privileged childhood. Like my parents and I, we lived in like a really nice part of the valley. I attended really nice public schools. I was in a very safe environment. Uh, I never had to worry if I had a, was going to have a roof over my head. So that part of it, my childhood was very good. However, I didn't really get a lot of freedom growing up. I also was, was slash am the only artist in my family, at least in the type of artist I am. So I didn't really have a lot of people I could connect with in my family. And I kind of had like Harry Potter syndrome. In this se- it was funny, like in the sense that it seemed like everyone else in my family knew what I was <laughs> and they knew who I was. They knew I was a very special kid. I wasn't good at school, but I was very intelligent. So they kind of just like, what do we do with him? So they tried to kind of make me normal, so to speak, without my knowledge. And it wasn't until, again, I got, I was maybe 18, 19, that I was like, oh, I'm an artist. Oh, that explains why, you know, that explains why all this, all my childhood was so confusing. But my parents were very, they're very loving. They're very protective in the sense that they really want, they wanted the best for me and my younger sister. And so they were, and they were afraid for me because I wasn't good at school. They were like, all right, well, you're a black man, so you can't be out here. Like, you know, they know what happens to, you know, black men who don't excel in school. And they didn't want that life for me. So they came off very strict and very demanding, which kind of in turn, like, made me more rebellious (laughs) because I'm really stubborn. But ultimately it worked out because... I found out I am actually, I'm very intelligent, just not in a book smart way. You know, I have ambitions that are sort of beyond academia. And I put all of that into my art post high school, which I know they're very, very happy about. Cause they, I know they weren't really sure what was going to happen to me after I graduated, but uh, it, all, it all worked out. Are they supportive of you now as you continue to rise in the animation industry? Yeah. Yeah, they're very, very supportive. And they've, they've learned more about the craft since I've started, even I think since I got into animation school. I think they've taken it upon themselves to learn a little bit more of what's going on, like 
what animators do and what animation's like, even just to comfort them. But yeah, they're definitely very, very supportive. And they, they, let, they let me know on a regular basis, and it's very nice. Aww. Yes. So you're a part of LGBTQ. How do you feel as a person of color and LGBT navigating through the animation industry? Oh boy, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good question. It's difficult because there's not many of us. I have found that it's easier to be LGBT in the animation community than it is being black in the animation community. And I think it's because like, I'm laughing because I'm just like, I guess I'll just get canceled, but whatever. I, I honestly feel like it's because, you know, being LGBT, even before I got into animation, I've noticed it's something that, especially within the past, like, 20 years, white people have kind of started to coin a little bit more. It's a little more acceptable to talk about because it also affects white people. However, black being Black only affects Black people. So within the industry... I feel like there's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of loud and proud members of LGBT. There's a lot of uh, discussion around it. And to that regard, I think it's, it's still not where it should be, but I think it's a little bit easier than being black. But being both gay and black puts me in this corner where I'm like, almost no people, you know, like me, that I can truly relate to on like multiple levels. Mm-hmm. But in terms of LGBT representation in the industry, I think it's really bad. Um, I think that's worse than, if not maybe not worse, but on a similar level to the lack of representation of the Black community. I think it's because of the homogenous mindset of the straight white men on, up top on the food chain. And even though I've only been in the industry for about a year, to be very blunt about it, it's a it's been apparent to me that they don't really have a lot of interest in representing those in the LGBTQIA plus community because it's politicized. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was from my, my experience pitching a year ago to Disney. I pitched an intern project and I it was a heritage property, which means it's a property they already own. So I just pitched it to them. And I was like, hey, this is the thing. Also, I'm turning one of the characters bisexual because... I th- figured it would make sense. And then Disney was kind of like, that's cool. It's a, little, it's a little political, don't you think? And I'm like, no. And, and it, it was weird, like, mm. it, you know, it was kind of this weird back and forth. And I was like, oh, my gay kids exist. I don't know how it's political. You know what I mean? Yeah. But again, in that moment, I kind of realized that's like, oh, this is political to them, you know? And then I did a little more digging and I realized that this is on a broader scale where it's like, Big studios tend to only care about representation when they need to fulfill, like, a bucket list. For example, insert studio name here has a quote of, like, you need at least two LGBT people in your next film of 2020, you know? So then what they'll do is they'll be like, oh, let's hide, like, a gay couple in the background, or let's give this a side character two gay dads, and let's call it a day. We've now hit quota. You know, not saying this is what happens on paper, but that's what it feels like when I'm hearing these conversations coming from people up top. They're sort of like, how do we represent these people in a way that makes them happy instead of like genuinely wanting to integrate them? And so, and as a black man, it's really, 
interesting to see because nobody really likes to talk about the fact that I'm black, <laughs> which is, it's ironic, but also not because, mm-hmm. you know, nobody likes to kind of like acknowledge the fact that like, I'm the only black man at this lunch table or like, hey, I'm the only black person on this whole team or like, hey, there's no black people on this show. You know, it's like no one likes to talk about it because it makes them uncomfortable. And as, a, and as a black person, we're conditioned from a very young age to like stay silent to keep the peace. And that's why I kind of say being black is kind of harder than being LGBT because this, the issues affect a very small specific group. Whereas like LGBT issues, again, they transcend race and sort of ethnical background or even sexual assignments because it can affect anyone, you know, being LGBT, which is why I think it's something that it's more talked about in animation, which I think I'm glad about, but it's, it's hard. It is hard to navigate being both. It's very, very difficult. It's hard to kind of have a voice in the room because no one really wants, no one really wants to, sorry, no one up top uh, seems to really want to hear what you have to say because they don't, they can't relate. Sort of like indirect silencing Mm. where you don't, you, you feel like your opinion is not welcome and it's just something in the air, you know? You can see it by who's on your crew. You see it by, like, how much things are just not talked about or not acknowledged. It ha- it, there's a really weird colorblind view happening in animation that no one wants to really acknowledge. But to me, it's, you know, to me and any other... Even, a, even any person of color, it's very clear as day, you know, that to an extent, depending on every show is a little bit different, but no one seems to like to point out the obvious the elephant in the room we are recording this during a a very large surge of the black lives matter movement and i'm sure you have i have i've gotten white friends reaching out saying oh don't worry i'm on your side or what have you Mm -hmm. Um, do you feel like this might start opening doors or conversations in a way or do you feel, I mean, I know this is kind of a heavy question. But no, it's great. It's great. Do you feel that once this movement settles down from mainstream, people are just going to forget about it? Because as you know, you and I are both black and this is an ongoing thing within the black community and this movement's never quiet down or slowed down for us. Yeah. But now since all the white folks are in it do you feel like maybe this will actually help or shape or change the animation industry or filling a another quota or i don't know i also have a very pessimistic view no it's it's you know that's that's a great great question and i think it's not pessimistic at all because it's it's our reality Uh you know something we experience and actually to answer your question i would say that yeah, I think it's still going to be a quota type thing because I'm already seeing it. Um, I'm, I'll be very careful. Not, I, won't, I won't name any studios in specific um, or any people that reached out to me in specific, but I can already see there are people kind of being like, hey, we want, you know, we like Black people. We want this amount of Black people at our studio or like on my team for this project. We want this. And I'm kind of sitting here being like, you're not really addressing the issue, but like, yes, give us jobs. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's sort of like, I think that white people 
need more time than they think they need mm -hmm. to really understand the the gravity of what's going on. I think a, a few of them are like empathizing, which is good, but that's not really understanding. I think it takes it's gonna it's gonna take like personally, I think it's gonna take like like a couple of years for white people to really understand what's going on because for, for black people be, be growing up black you don't really get the scope of things un until like it, it's years it's years of growing up and living it mm -hmm. that you kind of understand what's going on um and, and that's, that's, that's us being black so I'm like for white people i think they're gonna need maybe not as much time being adults but they still need, they need it's gonna take a few years of con like conditioning and unlearning actively and I don't think, I don't really have a lot of hope for animation, if only because it's not, it's still run by uh, straight white guys. And as long as those people are up top, I don't think anything's going to change. So I guess my answer to the question would be, if we replace them with uh, predominantly women of color, that's when I think the animation industry will change. And I do specifically say women of color because I think that um, animation as a whole is still very like male centric. Mm -hmm. So while I think putting men of color in, in the position of power would be a good step forward, that's not going to uh, be a real catalyst for any real change because then it's still going to be like straight men up top, even for men of color, you know? And it's like we need to kind of like flip it upside down, um, almost entirely, in order for there to be any like a real surge of change. Which is why I don't think you're pessimistic at all. I think you're. I think you're actually quite right in not having a lot of like initial hope. You know, I would be shocked too by white friends too being like, "Oh, I totally on your side." Or like, "We're one of the." Yeah, and I'm just like, I don't. I don't know. Like, this is why I'll probably cancel. Because I'm just like, I really don't care about that. It's it's like, it's not so much that, like, I don't care about the fact that they are reaching out. Like, that much help. It's like, but I'm sort of like, these words don't mean anything. Because, you know, you should have been caring. Yeah. You know, it's been very, it's like, you know, I was only per I was only a black person at school. You know, I was only a black person on our team. You know, I was only a black person, you know, in our friend group it's like so why is it all of a sudden now you're on my side yeah you know so that's why i kind of sit here and I go like you have to you have work to do go do your homework then we'll talk about it and then that's when we can start talking about you being on my side you know but that's just that's just my take i don't know i have very strong opinions about that but i don't i do think there's hope i do think there's hope for it because this is this is good this this is a been a long time coming. Mm -hmm. We have the internet again, which is great. Um, so I, I have seen a lot of white people using their resources wisely. And a lot of them are actually, at least a lot of the ones I know, are on the right path, um, which is very comforting to see. And a lot of the ones I've seen aren't performative. Some are, but the ones I've seen are like really digging into themselves and they're kind of being a little more quiet they're like studying, they're sitting with it, they're being uncomfortable, they're bringing up the conversation with their coworkers and their friends, you know, people that we work with. And they're kind of like, hey, did you, how do you feel about this? You know, like, how let's talk about it. And that's really, that's really cool to see. Yeah.
So outside of work, what kind of hobby side hustles or interests do you engage in? I'm so afraid I'm going to like come off as like really boring. Because <laughs> um, my initial reaction is that I don't really have traditional hobbies anymore. What I like to do is I like to try out new restaurants. Um, I love to go out like clubbing and dancing, just exploring the city, getting into shenanigans with friends. I'm kind of like a situational social butterfly i'm really like introverted but i love being around people i like going out um i love i used to do martial arts for years that was my main hobby but i had discontinued that in high school and i haven't gone back to it since but other than that i like video games (laughs) that's i don't know if that counts as a hobby um no it does I really like fighting games and getting good at fighting games, and I really love RPGs, so I'll do that a lot. What are your top three favorite fighting games and your top three favorite RPGs? Oh my god. Okay, my top three favorite fighting games. No one's heard of this one, except for me, I guess, but it's Budokai Tenkaichi 2. Oh, yep, I don't know that one. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very specific. It's like you blinked and you missed it back in the mid-2000s. <laughs> my, my second one is Super Smash Brothers. Mm-hmm. And my last one, God, it was a, it was a toss-up. But I would say my last favorite fighting game is Clash Ninja 2. It's N- Naruto. I was going to say the Digimon fighting game, but that, that was an old one. Oh. Um, and then my favorite RPGs, off the top of my head, are Ocarina of Time, Kingdom Hearts 2, Final Mix, and... Mm, Am I allowed to say the same? No, I'll pick a different one. Uh, I was gonna say I'll, I was gonna pick something from the same like universe. What Kingdom Hearts or Zelda? I, I was gonna pick from the Zelda universe, but I'm like, no, I won't do that because they're very. I was gonna say Wind Waker, but I'm like, that's too similar. Oh, you could say Wind Waker. Wind Waker is a great game. I love Wind Waker. I know, but I was trying to be like special. Okay, I'll just say Wind Waker for now. Okay, for now. Yeah. And why Kingdom Hearts Two Final Mix out of all the Kingdom Hearts games? Oh man, it's so, it's so good. Kingdom Hearts 2 Final Mix, I think is the best. I think genuinely for me, it's one of the best RPGs I've played in my entire life. It has a perfect balance of gameplay, story, um, difficulty. It The world building is beautiful. The levels are gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's free roam, like most good RPGs, but it's like, it's just something about it. You know, it's like, has a very unique style of gameplay that I just adore. Like fighting with a keyblade is just so even it's so it's so it's so cool. What do you feel of the next steps in your journey? <gasps> oh, I like this question. <laughs> uh, okay, so because I'm extra, I think the next steps for me is to make a show. Ooh. And that's very non-traditional because I know that typically you have to be storyboard revisionist and storyboard artist and like storyboard director then director then whatever but I don't know for me I've always had a clear vision and what I wanted to make and I've always wanted to make a show and I think I'm really I trust that I'm very responsible in gaining the experience I need before I do something like I never really do something like that I think is completely out of reach. You know, I do think it's important to just kind of go for whatever, but I don't try to bite off way more than I can chew. 
I think I'm at a place now where my, you know, things I like, my my style of execution has matured to a point where I think I'm ready to at least attempt the next step. And the reason why I want to become a showrunner is primarily because I want to bring a bunch of voices together that aren't being heard, like underrepresented voices, primarily from people LGBT or, you know, women of color or, you know, people that are maybe are disabled and bring them all into one place and lift up those voices and collaborate with them to tell stories from my heart. And that's like, to me, that's something that's very sophisticated about animation because it is very much the art of collaboration. It's not the art of doing what you want and then just hoping it works out. It's how you bring out the best in the people you work with. And I want to see what I can make with like a bunch of people who you know, I can share something with. We can make something special. So that's what I. That's why I want. That's why I hope is next for me. That's why I'm. That's why I'm gunning for, because I always, I always love, I always love doing stuff like that. Oh, that sounds amazing. Okay, so you're gonna have to let us know when you hear any new development about this that you can legally share. Yeah, no, of course. Like, I'm just, I'm just excited to be to be here. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm still in awe that I'm even in the industry. Like. It's it's super cool. But you'll be the first one you'll be the first one to know. Like trust. Ah, thank you. Okay, now is the time for rapid questions. Where I I'm ready. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't groan. I have people groaning when I say this. So this is, as you know, the time where I ask a series of this or that, yes or no questions, and you answer them as quickly as possible. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is your favorite summer activity? Sleeping. <laughs> I'm not even going to lie. I love sleeping. <laughs> sleeping is so good. Who do you admire the most? Gendy Tartakovsky. Mm -mm. Good answer. Thank you. Chocolate or strawberry? Chocolate. Nice. Apples or bananas? Apples. Also nice. If you were famous, what would you be famous for? Mm, telling uh, surprisingly dark stories hidden behind cheerful characters. <laughs> Perfect. On a scale from 1 to 10, how cool are you? I'm like a negative 5. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, 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 was, I would say I'm a solid, I'm a solid 6. I'll give myself a 6. Aww. Yeah, okay. well, I don't know, because I don't really do a lot. I just, like, sit there and I just, like, <laughs> I just, like, exist. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll, I'll do anything cool. I don't ride a motorcycle or anything like that, so I can't really give myself, like, too many points. Okay, that's fair. And still, very modest. What's your favorite season? Winter. What's your favorite season name? But, it, does butter count? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> listen, my favorite, my favorite seasoning is paprika. Give me a word that starts with a letter W. Um, Westchester. Give me a different word. Mm, watermelon. Give me a third one. Uh, wallaby. <laughs> okay. What is your favorite song? <laughs> uh, it's the one that made my thesis film too. Uh, it's Twerk by John Hart. 
what is the last band or artist you listened to? Ah, uh, this is unfair. It was Linkin Park, but it not it was okay. It was it was Linkin Park because I was watching some like AMVs from like the mid two thousand. Oh, Austin, you felt like adding that to Linkin Park was gonna explain it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have a lot of shame when it comes to that. I was like, time to go down memory lane. Linkin Park. What kind of AMV? It was like the, it was the Dragon Ball Z ones. Dead ass. Like, I have no shame. <laughs> this, this, this is who I am. That's okay. When I was younger, I used to watch those AMVs where they take two characters from two different properties. Oh, I and... love those. Yeah, those are... <laughs> They're so funny. They're so funny. Funny and it's always the angsty music. Yeah. So good. Oh, they're amazing. Good taste. Good taste. Okay. Here's my for real last question. I want you to do an impression of a celebrity. That's not even a question, that's a request. Impression of a celebrity. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Damn, I don't even know what 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 kind of Do you want me to give you a celebrity? Give me a couple, yeah. Okay. How about Little Wayne? Oh, that, okay. This is this is this is fun. Okay. <laughs> wait. Okay. Wait. I I think I, I think I could do Little Wayne. Okay. Then do Little Wayne. Okay. Let me let me see for a second. Okay. Um. <laughs> oh, this is gonna sound so bad. <laughs> Hold on a minute. Hold on. I, I know. I gotta pick myself out. Um, God. Yo, yo what does this? What does this man sound like? He, he does like the like a lollipop. <laughs> like, like that. That's basically all I have. Okay, I'll take it. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you, Austin. Thank you so much for having this lovely conversation and also that lovely impression. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Do you have any social media you'd like to share with us? Yeah. Um, my Instagram and my Twitter are both Rocks and Rocks, R-O-X-I-N-R-O-X. Um, that's basically all I have. <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm mostly a, I try to stay off social media, but you can find me there. Hit me up. Say hello. I like talking to people. <laughs> and thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Please follow Creating in Color on Instagram and Twitter, and feel free to submit any questions for upcoming guests through our social media or our email, creatingincolorcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in following me, you can find me on Instagram and YouTube at Maybe It's KB. Thanks to Namikaze for allowing us the use of his song. You can find more of his music on his SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Namikaze. That's N-A-M-I-K-A-Z-E. I always have to read it like a robot because I will trip over the letters. <laughs> <laughs> Since Creating a Color is a new podcast, we appreciate any word of mouth or even help pushing our hashtag on social media, hashtag creating and color cast. Before we wrap up, do you have any departing words of wisdom for everyone listening? Yes. Trust yourself. That will take you way further than you think it will. Trust yourself. Thanks so much. This has been Creating in Color. Keep striving. Keep trying. Keep creating. Bye. Bye.
说